0: Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner, the final podcast of 2021. Now, Charlie High bestrode public life in Ireland for about four decades from the late 50s, and then in retirement he was back front and centre, with shocking revelations emerging about the millions which he had received from various sources when he was a senior politician. Professor Gary Murphy of the School of Politics in DCU has written a comprehensive, and I have to say a compelling, account of High's life. Gary had access to his subject's personal papers, which were all donated to DCU, and he also brought to the project his own deep knowledge and insights into politics in this country as it has evolved in the latter half of the last century. Many will consider Hay's ultimate legacy as wholly negative, Others will perhaps prefer to credit him for the positive contributions he made to the country at various stages of his career. One way or the other, his presence was compelling and his story, including his parentage, span the foundation of the state to the turn of the century, And I think it's fair to say that Ireland took its place among the wealthy nations of the world. Gary Murphy joins us now to talk about the life of Charlie High. Gary, one of the... Aspects to Charlie High, I think that it was perhaps well known, but not as much acknowledged, particularly in later years and those of us who would have come to him as a, a character when he'd further on in life, was his beginnings. Now, he was very much from a working class and for somebody at that point in terms of education and all, when he rose during the 40s and 50s, it was a pretty big leap to come from that background up to UCD, found an accountancy firm, and so early on be such a prominent figure in Fianna Fáil.
1: Yeah, so his his background is, uh, we might describe it best as maybe straightened or or modest. He lived in Belton Park Road from the age of seven. Belton Park Road in the suburbs of the north side of Dublin, Donny Carney. He lived in a private development, an enclave surrounded by public corporation houses, and, you know, I spoke to his brother, Owen Hockey, I know deceased, about, about their childhood. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there was no real demarcation between public and private. It was working class, maybe aspirational, lower middle class. Some people around there had certainly sort of uh, civil service type jobs, uh, lots of trades, uh, small shopkeepers uh, and the like. But his father was very ill for for pretty much all of Hockey's uh, life. He was invalided out of the... Irish Army to use the word at the time in 1928 he was a very strong Republican Johnny Haughey, as was his wife Sarah McWilliams they met during the War of Independence when Johnny Haughey was on the run I visited Swatra in South Derry would be strong Republican country to this day and there was a, there's a kind of the remnants of a trench in Swatra, where Johnny Haughey and it was Haughey's cousin, uh, Seamus McWilliams, was my sort of guide for a day or two when I was up there a few years ago. Uh, he showed me the, the remnants of the trench where uh, Johnny Haughey and his comrades uh, camped out and where Sarah McWilliams would bring them food and, and clothing. A strong Republican uh, area and that feeds into Haughey's lifelong genuine Republicanism.
0: Was it unusual for somebody from that background, from Derry and that area, to, to go on the Free State side um, in the civil war,
1: it was for, for the most part unusual, but there was a few like uh, like uh, Johnny Hawley, and he had a uh, he had a reputation as being a very uh, skilled operative in in the arts of uh, guerrilla warfare, one might say, to use a more current phrase. But a lot of them were devoted to Collins, you know, and, and Collins is the ultimate army man, um, and so a lot of people did go to the Collins side. But but most people if from sort of South would be, be strongly uh, anti treaty. And he's in the Irish Army then, Johnny Haughey up to 1928. But he has what we call now multiple cirrhosis. I mean, there he was diagnosed with having nerves, bad nerves. Um, but as we know, know, it was, it was basically uh, MS. Uh The family had moved around a little bit. They were in Me, They had a farm, a small farm uh, in Dunshockland, the Riggins. But in 1933, they moved to, to Belton Park. haughey's uh, brother, Owen haughey the youngest of, of seven, uh, there are four boys and three girls uh, he for instance never saw his father walk so uh, Sarah Williams, a uh, strong woman uh, would lift the infirm Johnny Hockey up and down the, the stairs uh, to feed him she wanted him out of bed to give him some sort of routine in terms of feeding him and then when uh, Charles Hockey uh, Porrick sometimes known as Jock Sean and, and Owen got older they were, they lifted the father up and down uh, the stairs so it it's straightened it's difficult and um, but nevertheless, you know, she was a powerful woman, Sarah McWilliam. She was able to, like, you know, support them and encourage them. And education was a big The 1938, comes first of 500 boys in the Dublin Corporation Scholarship exam. There's a nice picture, I think, in the book, which uh, i taken from the Irish press of, of uh, August 38, showing Cahil Hathi, Belt and Park, first of 500. That allows him to go to, famously, Joey's in Fairview, St. Joseph's famous known as Joey's to do his secondary education. His elder brother Sean had come second in the scholarship exam the year before. So they were very bright, uh, very sharp uh, young men by all accounts. And then Joey's is a formative influence because he thought about leaving early. And Joey's is interesting because they don't have a Leaving Cert class until I think 1941. he is a Leaving Cert in 43. Um And in those days, unlike now, you, you sort of chose on the day in UCD, what you were going to do? It's not like the CEO now, uh, and how he chose Commerce because his friend Harry Boland, uh, with a lifelong friendship, and they, as you mentioned, McDay went into the an accountancy firm together. Um, his brother, Boland's elder brother, was involved in accountancy and sort of promised, in a, in a kind of vague way, that there was a future career here. So, Kahi Caw- he does commerce in UCD. He is an outsider. There are not terribly many from the north side of Dublin going to UCD and Earlsford Terrace in the first place. Most of them are paying fees. Caw- Hahi's on a scholarship and that. I think sometimes we can take the sort of outsider motif a bit too far. Caw- Hahi was never hung up about That's class. the interesting That's the thing, thing yeah. I thought, yeah,
0: because what really comes across is coming from that background and particularly moving into that other milieu, uh, you're a lot of middle class as it was yeah, yeah. Uh, in Dublin or some what have you, that th- there is no sign anywhere that there's a lack of self-confidence, which is a fantastic attribute for somebody like him to have. And I suppose you're back there to his mother, to the family home, notwithstanding the, the father's illness and the fact that, as you say, both him fought in the war of independence, yet here, to some extent, because of the illness they were thrown to the scrap people like a lot of other people who'd fought in the War of Independence.
1: Oh, very much so and and both their pension records uh, which are online uh, show the difficulty particularly uh, his mother, Sarah McWilliams, had it, in getting a half-decent uh, pension and also in getting services for her ill husband who had served the state. Uh, you know, and that is a black mark on, on the state, not just the hockeys, but, uh, you know, whole cadre of, of people. But, you know, like a lot of people who sort of go to university, maybe I'm including myself here, I went in the mid-1980s uh, from the sort of inner city Cork. Uh, oh, used was only 10 minutes away from me, but it was like a different world, really. But anyway, you never had any hang-ups in UCD. He instantly fitted in. He joins the debating club uh, straight away. He becomes the secretary of the sort of Commerce and Economic Society. He's a champion debater, as is his... Girlfriend, the later wife, Maureen Lamass. She's a champion debater uh, herself. Uh, he meets her there uh, in the bicycle sheds. Uh, she knew Harry Boland because Boland and Lemass were, you know, sort of Fianna Fáil um, royalty. He hung about then with people like Boland, uh, George Colley, and other sons of sort of the Fianna Fáil uh, revolutionary uh, class. And that brings him into the Fianna Fáil milieu for the first time he's interested in politics in his sort of uh, in his teenage days but he's not obsessed about it by any means but once he uh, you know once he advances in UCD uh, he's there for a few years in the mid 1940s he comes second in the in the Bcom uh, he wins various prizes as he goes uh, along he's becoming much more interested in, in politics and obviously his friendship courtship and ultimate uh, uh, engagement and marriage to, to Maureen Lamass uh, cements that. I try to, I think, uh, debunk this idea in the book that how he married Maureen Lemass for advancement in, in Fianna Fáil uh, because I met her once in 2014 when I started out on, on this book. She was a formidable woman in her own self and I tried to give her some agency back. The idea that she would have married him for his benefit in Fianna Fáil is just ludicrous yeah. in my view and uh, unfair on her. But he does mix with that sort of generation uh, of uh, young up-and-coming uh, Fianna Fáilers who are sons of Fianna Fáil uh, royalty to use that uh, un-Republican word um, and that sets him up then. 1948 is an important year Fianna Fáil lose power for the first time in 16 years but it's the first time hockey is involved uh, he started canvasses for the uh uh in Dublin northeast the candidates are Oscar Trainer uh, and uh, Harry Colley uh, George Colley's uh, father uh, and he would he would end up taking his seat a number of years later but he then has a very difficult run in the 1950s where he's uh He's a perennial loser in elections.
0: As I suppose there are a lot of people start oh, to yeah. it's, not, it's not that unusual. What really comes across to me, Gary, in the book is in his various um, portfolios, when he was a minister for agriculture and for justice in particular in the 60s. And this is a time, of course, Lamas, as you mentioned, he uh, was responsible, along with TK Whitaker for this opening up of the economy. You, you were looking outwards rather than inwards. And it would strike me that in that milieu, how he was the absolute right man in the right place, because in some ways he was quite brilliant at the role of managing portfolios in, in, uh, in the government.
1: Uh, he was, yeah. He runs for a number of occasions in the 50s and he's, uh, he's unsuccessful. Uh, he finally makes a breakthrough in 1957. In the 50s, his father-in-law, uh, Sean Lemass, did send him uh, around the... Uh, on, on a tour, basically of uh, of coming all across, uh, Finnafall coming all across Ireland, uh, Bad Roads, Donegal, West Cork, Kerry, Wexford, all over the country, really. And you know, so his father recognises that he has quite a uh, serious ability, and they're, they're, I don't think nepotism is quite the right word, but you know. He obviously knows uh, his, uh, his son-in-law of Hockey and Maureen Le Maître married in 1951 and recognised what is clearly a, a, a talent. Again, Hockey, uh, no uh, problems with uh, uh, self-promotion. He writes uh, to the General Secretary of Fianna Fáil uh, on his first election to say, I, have, uh, I am particularly able to speak for the party in economics and finance and many people weren't able to speak for Fianna Fáil uh, there. Uh, he's appointed Parliamentary Private Secretary Minister for State in 1961 to Oscar Trainer, his constituency a colleague, rival. Um, and then he's made Minister for Justice um, in, in a reshuffle and uh, he's a very energetic, innovative uh, minister. Famously, the Succession Act, which is often talked about, but it's important.
0: I think people perhaps don't appreciate the enormity of that at the time, Gary.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ireland was a very patriarchal uh, society, and uh, you know, women, um, uh, wives, could be literally written out of the um, of any succession to the uh, to the family home. Uh, How was on record as saying that he found the idea that his mother. Uh, could have been, that family home could have been sold out from under her, abhorrent, and uh, and he was involved. Now, the final legislation is passed by his successor, Brian Lenehan, when Haughey moved to agriculture in 1964 in a, in a mass reshuffle, uh, but that was a genuine piece of uh, reform, uh, an innovative reform. And um, The civil service, the Department of Justice wasn't necessarily against it, uh, but it was very slow moving, and it did take... Uh, a radical, innovative, energetic, uh, political hand uh, to make it work. And I think that's important. The other thing I would say, you know, it's at the sort of opposite end of the spectrum, is even something like the death penalty. High is responsible for the abolition of the death penalty. He's the minister in charge. And while the death penalty stays on the books, uh, right up until the 1980s for capital offences, murder of guards, as you, you yourself have written so eloquently about, um... You know that uh, most of those offences were commuted anyway. But he was he was appalled. He had visited the the death cell uh, in Mountjoy uh, Prison and just was appalled by the general. Uh, uh, sort of uh, atmosphere there and in a progressive outward looking society how oh, he was of the view as many were that uh, but some not in the Department of Justice that uh, there was no place for something like the death penalty but there's a whole other range of civil legislation there's changes in tort uh, you know there, there's a lot going on when he is his minister and uh, and he drives the civil servants very hard and he has a kind of a work ethic like his uh, like his father-in-law Lamas I mean uh, he is kind of curt straightforward he arrives does his business and goes could do a bit more of that, that is <laughs> probably could but he has a very, you know because his father and Las said the same thing and they weren't much either either of them were not ones for uh for small talk and they weren't hanging around the bars of Leinster house or anything uh like that uh but he's very he's very innovative in reforming and reforming an important figure in the uh, Injustice And then it goes to agriculture It's it not as successful there And one of that thing Is there's huge role With the National Farmers Association And they had massive power At that they time They had massive power They were mostly associated With Fine Gael um, Fine Fallers You saw from the queues Uh the uh, the NFA of being uh, blue shirts on tractors, uh, <laughs> which was a famous phrase used in in Fianna Fáil uh, at the uh, at the time, um, and that is a very difficult for him. I write of an incident in Athlone where he, he, the, the car he is in is uh, surrounded by angry uh, protesters as he's making uh, finishing a speech in the Prince of Wales Hotel uh, in Athlone, and it became a very that was a very difficult strike. It was only actually resolved. And when he was moved out, uh, he was promoted basically from agriculture uh, to finance. And finance is a big, important step forward. It puts him much closer to the sort of uh, the top job and how he wanted a top job. He was desperately ambitious. There's no point saying otherwise. he was maybe ruthlessly ambitious, but he was very ambitious. And, you know, he knew Lamas uh, wouldn't be around for for very much longer. Uh, and in sixty six when the vacancy uh, when Lamas decides to uh, to retire, Uh, Hockey does consider running, uh, but ultimately uh, doesn't. But it always makes me think, no one ever talks about the the ambition of George Colley, for instance, uh, to be leader of Fianna Fáil, or no one talks about the ambition of Gareth Fitzgerald to be leader of Fianna Gael or whatever. I mean, Colley forced, who was the same age as Hockey, but more junior in terms of uh, parliamentary experience, he forced the, the leadership election of '66 which he lost to uh, to Jack Lynch. How had decided not to run um, I write about this in the uh, in the book uh, and when Lynch wins, he makes Hockey his minister uh, for finance and he's pretty much at the pinnacle there. he's like in his uh, you know his beer. he's just over 40 years of age and he's he wants to do a lot with uh, with, uh, with the tiller
0: and then we come to the big issue well, one of the big issues, obviously, in his career, the arms yeah, tr- the arms crisis, I suppose. And, it's, and the arms trial. And the arms trial subsequently. Yeah. Now, it has been gone over a lot, and I suppose in its most basic form, and I suppose we have to remember, it was 50 years ago, that some people want to have... Well only the vague notion what it was, yeah, but yeah. we're talking about um when everything exploded in the north, there was a question of what should be done down here. Ultimately there was an attempt to import arms. Yeah. And it was a question of who exactly had authorized that and who hadn't.
1: And everything. who knew what was in the shipment? Exactly. which is a big point. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh, and then what what ultimately came out in the wash was that um uh, Hahi, uh, Neil Blaney, was there a third man fired from the Cabinet?
1: No, um, well, Kevin Bowling, Kevin Bowling, did, Bowling No, resigned. no, he, he resigned. He resigned in, in, in he resigned. sympathy with the Yeah, exactly. And, and the,
0: there was initially charges against High and Blaney. Those against Blaney were dropped. And what it ultimately ended with was Charles High being charged and put on trial in the Dublin Circuit Criminal Court, I think it was, mm. with this plan to import arms. He was acquitted. It's an extraordinary story, even,
1: e- even the way you tell it there. Yeah, it I is. Mean, it's quite amazing. It's amazing. amazing. Ha- it. yeah, okay, so Hockey was like, so 1969, August 69, the troubles erupt in Derry, they spread to Belfast. There's chaos, uh, not just in Northern Ireland, but in the reaction in the in the Republic. Uh, and Fianna Fáil are caught unawares, as is the whole country. Uh, and there is outrage, as I write in the book some correspondence to Hockey uh, from ordinary people saying, you know, finally fall and the government must do something just to revert very quickly i mean Haji has a very successful period from 66 to 69 as minister for finance for the first time the country is in uh, in surplus he has a budget surplus he does in- innovative things like free travel free electricity uh, for pensioners the artist uh, tax exemption uh, which was resisted uh, as was free travel uh, by 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 someone like ken Whitaker, who Haji had a difficult relationship with uh, and Whitaker was used that his ministers would do what Whitaker told them and uh, how he wasn't like that with any of his civil servants. Uh, but he is at the at practically the, the zenith of his career and it all was spectacularly peer-shaped when he is, um in April of 1970, uh, he has the famous fall off the horse Allegations that he was beaten up by a jealous uh, husband. Uh, you know, as I write in a footnote in the book, you know, it depends where you read. It's either West Dublin, North Dublin, Ongar, or some other part of Mead. All I can say is that both Maureen Lamass and uh, Eamon Mulhern, I interviewed them. The uh, daughter. The daughter, and they said they were there on the day and they saw it happen. And he was moved from Abbeville to the matter in an ambulance. That is a matter of public record. So, anyway, Lynch interviews him in hospital. Did, what did he know? Hottie Blaney, uh, Joe Brennan, and Patrick Faulkner were, were put in charge of it. It was a little committee about finance. Ministers. Yeah, and there's there there's a subcommittee about how to use emergency money basically to help uh, distressed citizens in the, the North. That committee only ever met once and how he did have is his, his sort of hand on the tiller. He's famously hands-on uh, minister and then Lynch questions him in uh, April 70 uh, and then fires him the f- a few weeks later when he is out of hospital but still he's, he's like he's infirm he's not like, he's not at his desk uh, and the question is then Michael Heaney you know who I uh, who reviewed this book in the Dublin Review of Books uh, last week in a Mostly positive, but, you know, some somewhat critical uh, review. And, you know, as you know yourself, you go into the bear pit, you take your chances. Um, he's written very eloquently and well, I think, in his book, The Plot That Never Was. David Bork, and one or two others have, have entered into this really murky and complex case. So there was a plot to import arms uh, or there was a, a plan. Uh, Heaney says The Plot That Never Was. Uh, it depends, did Hockey know that these were arms? Uh, and also, did he or did he not know uh, were these arms going to go to the provisionals uh, or were they for the Irish Army? And his defence was that A, he didn't know they were arms, and B, he assumed that anything that was coming in was for the lawful protection of. And that's the,
0: other, the other issue is did the Minister for Defence, Jim Kilchill, well, I...
1: did the Taoiseach Jack Lynch? Yeah, and, and someone like Heaney would, would would basically say they did. Uh, I kind of exonerate Hockey I, for the most part because I don't think, Mick, the evidence is there. To suggest that Hockey and Blaney, which was the charge politically, were running an alternative government out of Leinster House. I mean, Hockey wasn't close to Lynch. He didn't have a tremendous respect for Lynch uh, intellectually. He thought Lynch was lazy. They have a row when Lynch is Minister for Finance and Hockey is Minister for Agriculture about subsidies uh, and about payments of farmers. Um, But the evidence, it's it's a stretch to think that there was something, uh, that there was an alternative. Uh, government going on no David McCullen, another generous review in RT says that I, I'm too generous to Hawkeye because he was famously hands on and you know it, the beggars start to believe that he wouldn't have known uh, I kind of go by the evidence as best I can but what does happen is uh, there. the guards come to Abbeville they, they question him uh, with his solicitor Pat O'Connor uh who was very close confident politically of how he's for famously for Pat, O'Connor, Pat, Pat O'Connor Pat O'Connor because there was voted twice. Yeah once, although yeah. I, I, but as you know the judge also to yeah, throw yeah, yeah, out that yeah, charge. Yeah. Uh, and I I spoke to Pat O'Connor's daughter Neeve. She was one of my many interviews for this uh book. Um but, but that's an important meeting in Anbeville because at the end of it uh O'Connor asks uh, the chief superintendent Fleming, you know, what what's happening now? And uh Fleming says something along the lines of, well, you know, our investigations are ongoing. There's no expectation from Hoki or O'Connor that he will be arrested. And then before we know it, a few days later, they're back and they arrest him and uh, and he's charged. And Hockey, forevermore thought that this was a political charge, that Lynch and, and Colum Condon is the Attorney General. There's no DPP, as you know, at the time it, the decision is taken by the Attorney General. I mean, there's no evidence to say that the Attorney General did what Lynch told him, but that was always Hottie's uh, suspicion. He thought this was nothing but a political charge. And then in circumstances that are still slightly unclear, uh, the charges against Blaney were dropped. Now, we do know that Blaney was certainly in in uh, he he was, um, the other people charged are Captain James Kelly, the army officer, uh, John Kelly, a Belfast Republican, uh, and Albert Lux, who was a Belgian sort of uh, import exporter, who was the, the sort of the go between. Uh, but we know that Blaney had substantial dealings with all those three individuals, where Hawhey had much less. The charge against Blaney are dropped, but against Hawhey, there's two trials the first one is uh, collapses, um. And the after literally a week and then Hockey is uh, is on trial and it's I mean, and what I think other writers who've entered this murky business don't quite uh under It's not it's not that they don't understand, but, but what interested me was Hockey the man. I mean yeah. here he is, he's forty-five years of age, he's at the top, he's just moved into this enormously beautiful house, Abbeville, the James Gandon Design Mansion, um, and he's put on trial. Uh, and the it would depend on the judge uh, the sentence, but he could have lost his liberty for anything up to, I think, ten years was the maximum. You know, I know would have finished his career. Well, in he politics, was gone, and yeah, politics completely, was and, and his life would have, you know, his liberty yeah. would have been lost. Yeah, yeah. And then there are questions about, you know, what would he do when he came out? Yeah, going back into politics like was pretty much that was gone. Uh, he could have went into business, of course, but yeah. So, and that that that, that interested me about the arms trial.
0: As you mentioned, uh, how it affected high as a person, the uh, the whole arms trial. Do you think? It informed his character and his approach to politics, public life in general and everybody else. Do you think it affected him in that way that it might have refocused him or, or, or affected his character and how he would deal with people thereafter?
1: I do. I do. I, I think it's a formative uh, event in his uh, in his life. I mean, his conduct during the trial is very interesting. He's uh, very clipped. His answers are short to the point. Um, he takes a different tact to the other three defendants. Should be
0: pointed out too, sorry, just to... As you said, he's an accountant. He also qualified as a barrister. Oh, well, he did, yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. He did yeah. a barrister. So he, yeah, he did he, a he did barrister degree
1: all, by yeah. by Nice. He qualified yeah. in nineteen forty nine, I think. Um, so he had some legal training, um, and he was friendly with a lot of people at the bar. Uh, I mean, there's a famous party in his house tonight. He's acquitted. uh, with the sort of great and the good of Irish society rocking up. Um, but very quickly, you know, he finds himself isolated in Fianna Fáil. He had called basically for Lynch to consider his position in the, uh, uh in the press conference in the four courts after after his acquittal. He's acquitted on a Friday afternoon. Jury really takes only about two hours to acquit him and his de- fellow defendants. Um, but Lynch doesn't resign, and the cabinet rallies around Lynch. Uh And Hockey is then left isolated. Kevin Boland sets up a a new party. Uh, Neil Blaney would eventually resign and form independent Fianna Fáil. Boland wants Hockey and Blaney to join in this new party. Hockey considers it but dismisses it very quickly because he knew Fianna Fáil was bigger than him uh, and that he wanted to be Taoiseach. He had to be in Fianna Fáil. Uh, There's a terrible crisis uh, of conscience uh, when uh, Lynch forces a vote of confidence in Jim Gibbons, after Fia Nagael had threatened a vote of no confidence. And hockey is, is basically forced. Um, and Gibbons, he had no time for Gibbons. Uh, he again thought Gibbons was his intellectual uh, inferior and wasn't really up to very, very much. Uh, and uh, But he votes confidence in Gibbons the following year, 72. And uh, and this, you know, Harry Boland famously told the, the Miriam McAllen, Steve Carson, mint. Productions documentary in two thousand and five, you know that this was his lowest point in 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 his relationship with hockey. Uh, on the grounds that you know hockey basically swallowed uh, his pride and much else beside him voting with uh, with Gibbons. But again, it's I I I I write in the book that how he was able to compartmentalize a lot. And that's what he did on that occasion. Um, he's brought back to the front bench in 75. Uh, he's very popular with the backbenchers. He goes around the country, uh, as we know. The great irony, of course, is Hottie would never have considered leaving anyone from Fianna Falls speak in his constituency. <laughs> uh, but this didn't stop him travelling the country. Um, and he, uh, he has backbench back uh, significant support. He's brought back to the front bench. But certainly, the arms trial... Uh, and his sort, of, the impact it had on him as a person uh, was, I think, extremely uh, important. Um, he realised also again the importance of backbenchers, which become crucial in his his win in 1979 against the party's uh, elites preferred candidate George uh, uh, Collie. Uh, and the 70s are are difficult for him. Although, as I write in the book, which I think people might be of interest, you know, he becomes a fundraiser. Interest in giving his own leave for financial difficulties with the Central Remedial uh, Clinic. Uh, an early version of the Garda Representative Association tried to hire him to to represent them in in their battles with the uh, with the Commissioner and with the the the, the, the higher echelons of the uh, of the Guardi. He he agrees to do this, but uh, the um, it doesn't get off the ground because the the super, or the the, the Commissioner uh, puts the kibosh on it, uh, so to speak. There's kind of a lot going on in his life but certainly I think the ghost of the Armshire which is a section in the book lived with hockey forever. Yeah. People were always writing to him about it and he famously never spoke about it to uh uh to even his family. Uh the papers which we have here in DCU on the Armshire most of them are sort of you know witness uh, statements and the like. Um, I mean, I'm, I outline his kind of strategy uh, but, uh, you know, there is a memo that he Vincent Brown, uh, the famous journalist, came to see he when he was Minister for Health uh, in 1978 and that, that memo, which is about Peter Burry um, and what Lynch did or did not say to Buryway Way when he met him. Um, that was in his safe. Uh, Sean Hawley gave me a copy of it. It's not. Uh, it's not available publicly in the archive here. It won't be. Um, so, but the, 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 the ghosts of the Armstrong live at Hawley forevermore, and they do have a certain difficulty when he's Taoiseach uh, because many people thought he should, the jury got it wrong. Uh, now, that might be some sort of class thing going on or, you know, official Ireland against sort of, you know, hockey. Um, and certainly the British were obviously always suspicious of him uh, for the very same reason that he had been accused of gun running.
0: Yeah. Um, and as you say, ultimately he reached his destination in 1979. December over, 79. Yeah, he took over from Lynch in... Uh, an election victory where he sort of came from behind a couple of people, switch, most notably Michael O'Kennedy. But he goes on then and he becomes Taoiseach. There are various heaves against him internally, Mm. because he always was a divisive figure, into opposition. Then, I suppose, would it be fair to say that in the late 80s, when he came back as Taoiseach, in terms of uh, his achievements, now some people will definitely argue that in, in, in straightening out the public finances it was those who were most vulnerable were hurt mm. a theme that persists to this day at various junctures yep. but one way or the other I think it could be fair to say that the, the, there was a change in the country's fortunes there that was not too dissimilar to the one that his father-in-law had initiated back in the early yeah. 60s
1: Yeah I mean he wins in 79 uh, there's a very short election period called by Lynch to uh, facilitate George Colley uh, hockey beats him, forty-four to thirty-eight. One or two people Change their minds at the end. Or Kennedy, most famously, the party is constantly divided. Uh, over hockey, you know, to put it bluntly, uh, people like Des O'Malley, uh, Colly himself, uh, Seamus Brennan, they they never accept hockey uh, as the sort of democratically elected, uh, leader. Then there's the Gareth Fitzgerald Flawed pedigree thing, um. So there's all. There's a lot going on. I mean, how he's often accused of, you know, the famous we need to tighten our belt speech while he was living it up. Um, And, and he's culpable there, but O'Malley and Colley refuse adamantly to have any reduction in their budget, in their departmental budgets, as I write about in the uh, in the book. You know, he's in and out of office. There's the whole goo thing in 1982. Eventually he's out of office in November eighty-two. They lose the election um after the Workers' Party withdraw their support in November of eighty-two. And he's in a very lonely opposition. He hates being in opposition. He wants to be in power. He wants to get things done. In opposition, you know, he re- he opposes the Anglo-Irish agreement. And critical of that, uh, although someone like Bertie Ahern would say that the Anglo-Irish Agreement wasn't as, wasn't as important as the sort of Downing Street Declaration later. But in 80, February 87, there's an election. The country is a basket case economically. We have huge interest rates. We have huge emigration. I mean, I, I went to UCC in 1987, basically because there was nothing else to do. Most of my friends, for sort of from sort of inner city Cork, uh, emigrated. Some of them went to the Cork RTC, a few of us went to UCC, uh, but very few of us went into jobs and just on Cork, you know, Fords had closed down, Dunlop's had closed down, Apple hadn't come in yet, a very difficult period. Uh, And what Hockey does is he, um, he regains international confidence in Ireland because international confidence, his view was we needed to regain that thing. And he does cut, you know, Fianna Fáil have health cuts hurt the old sick to handicap as their famous slogan and then they do initiate a, a huge cost cutting particularly in health beds are are slashed and one might argue that that has never recovered uh to this day, uh, public beds in uh, in public uh, hospitals. And, you know how he famously said that he didn't realise how deeply the, the cuts uh, had impacted. With, with someone like Noel Dempsey, was very very critical of, who was elected for for the first time in in eighty seven, um, and who became one of the gang of four, who ultimately led to he that how he lost uh, power in nineteen ninety uh, two. But there are, there are things like the IFSC. You know, he's close, obviously, to Dermot Desmond. Desmond, of course, had tried to hawk the IFSC to the uh, Fianna Gael Labour government. Uh, had met famously with Rory Quinn in uh, late 1986. That government wasn't interested. There's a dinner in Abbeyville. I, I met Desmond. I interviewed him. Who said it was very interesting how you said, you know, what what's your solution to the problems? And they said, you know, you need to cut taxes, but you also need to cut public services. And how he says to him, well, that's easy for you to say, in your. Uh, Big beautiful house in Aylesbury Road, uh, and uh, to the other people who were there at the time. And Desmond told me that it was uh, he was very heartened to hear this that they weren't out. How oh, he wasn't just kind of nodding his head sycophantically or whatever, because uh, he says, you know, how are people in Rahini and Drumcondra and you know, uh, rural Kerry and wherever going to go into cope, but they do cut and it's a successful government and, and it does turn the economy... Social partnerships very important. I mean, we associate social partnership maybe with Bertie and how Hockey drives it because uh, he he's of the view you need the unions, you need the employers, you need the farmers. Community pillar. On, yeah, yeah, you need that like, to, for some sort of social uh, solidarity. And it's a successful government. He then ludicrously calls it an election in June 1989. I read about this in the book. He's jet-lagged. He's sick. And... Um, there was uh, some so some view that he called it because he needed money, and obviously money flowed into him when there was an election. But I, I don't give that as much credence as other people do. He wanted an overall majority. He, the polls were fantastic for Fianna Fáil; they were nearly at fifty percent. But Fianna Fáil always lost uh, votes or always lost percentage points in polls during an election campaign. And by the election in June '89, of course, he doesn't get the majority, and he's forced into coalition with uh, with Des O'Malley and the PDs. The last thing he wanted really although that government works.
0: Yeah did and as you say ultimately the past came back to haunt him very he, much so. he, he had to resign but you could say that for a few years thereafter the divisions there had been about him fell away there was a retrospective view I think forming that he had been uh, a, a very much a, a very positive mm influence and impact on modern Ireland, that he'd had a long and ultimately redemptive career in terms of how he finished it, then bang. All of that was part of Public Charlie. We got a glimpse of Private Charlie. Now, I suppose when I say Private Charlie, some people might... Suggest that issues like his very long-running affair with Terry Keane mm. was part of that. But, however, I think in relation to everything else, that fades into the background. The big issue with Private Charlie was it began to emerge. The money. The money. All the way back... Into the 60s uh, and, and people reassessed the idea. If you go back to the 60s, his selling of the house in Rahini, the rezoning of land, uh, his purchase of Abbeville, everything his purchase
1: of Grangemore before his that, Grangemore yeah, before
0: yeah. that, everything came under the microscope. Indeed, yeah. And there's no doubt, Gary, that the what ultimately emerged from that we have the, the, the tribunal. Ah, uh, that ultimately says he got eight million,
1: which yeah. Which
0: in, in today's money you could be talking tens of millions. You could, yeah. Um, and I think it was Bertie Hearn famously said, "What do you need nine million for?" Yeah, which really? is a very good way of putting. Them. Most of us would. But what it did was. And it should be said that there wasn't many specific connections made in relation Mm. to what he might have done for people. There was the famous one with Ben Dunn, who gave him two or three million, I think. Three million. Three million. million, And and that he made representations for the revenue for Dunn. He could claim, even though people would find it very difficult to take on board, that he'd have made those kind of representations for anyone else in the same situation. So there was no direct bribery as we know it. However, I think there is the massive issue over him. A, what it says about his politics and how he did things, yeah. and B, the damage that was done when somebody is dominant to that was taking so much money, and then we subsequently saw that others who worked under him also were yeah. taking money. And how responsible was he? The damage to the body politic, exactly. Basically.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so how he resigns in um, February nineteen ninety two. As T shock, he's for forced out in a power play basically. Uh, Albert Reynolds takes over, and then Reynolds, of course, has his famous night of the Long Knives, where he sacks half of Hockey's ca- over half of Hockey's uh, cabinet. A-, a complete break with the uh, with the pass. The Sean Doherty tapes. Um, The phone tapping on on Bruce Arnold and Geraldine Kennedy is sort of the catalyst for this. Uh, Hockey consistently said he'd know nothing about it. uh, And Doherty was the one who changed his his story. Um, Most people tend to believe uh, Doherty. I I, I try to present the Hockey defence, so-called, that he knew nothing about it. uh, And people close to Hockey say that he was very deeply traumatised uh, when the, the phone tapping emerged uh, in 82 in the first instance when it was revealed um, that Doherty had tapped the phones of Kennedy and Arnold so he he resigns and his retirement is relatively sedate you know horse racing was always a great passion of his and sailing he engages in that he, his number of grandchildren are born and you know He enjoys their company. Uh, He's living in a beautiful house. Uh, And, and, you know, he's on the Late Late Show with Pat Kenny and he gets a huge uh, reception. Uh, His horse, Flashing Steel, wins the Grand National and again, you know, he's he's kind of fated. Uh, And then it all comes crashing down. Margaret Heffernan arrives at his house one day uh, demanding the money back. Uh, Terrible shock to him. That her brother, Ben Dunn. uh, Because Ben Dunn gave Haji money and she said that Dunn didn't have the right to give Haji that money because it was... Dunn stores money as yeah. it's think from personal money from from Ben Dunn. he uh, never thought that any of this would emerge and that is a fatal flaw um, in his thinking. And of course it does emerge and he has been ruined uh, basically because first of all we have the Buchanan report and Gerald Buchanan was a classmate of Houghy's at the bar for 40 years in uh, uh, 1949 um, close to 50 years earlier. Uh, the McCracken Tribunal is very damning of Haughey and then Moriarty starts really Really, you know, pouring over literally everything, and uh, and what Moriarty finds later on in a very damning critique is that there was three. He finds three elements. He doesn't call it corruption, but obviously where hockey interfered with. uh, with public policy that had an impact on the uh, on, on the state and benefited those involved. And one of them was to do with Ben Dunn, where Hathi introduced the chairman of the Revenue, Seamus Park here, uh, to Ben Dunn. Now, Núló Fuelon wrote a very famous piece in the Irish Times that Hathi was forever interfering and telling people that he he did it because he, he thought people should know that when they voted for politicians, politicians were able to do this uh, for them. The interesting thing was that the... Uh, the Dunn's tax bill was reduced and then, of course, the taxing master uh, wiped off the bill completely, there, but there didn't pay any tax. Um, but, you know, and Hockey is dead, of course, in 2006, he dies in 2006, he is dead when the Moriarty Tribunal uh, reports. I mean, there have been some criticisms of, of my work that I spend more time on the Hockey family's uh, rebuttal of Moriarty than on Moriarty itself, but, you know, be that as it, as it may. Hawke uh, was, and it goes back to the sixties. Hawke hires this trainer uh, to be an article clerk in hockey Boland, uh, and then he said to tribunals that he passed over all dealings financially to uh, to a trainer.
0: Trainer was dead by that. Trainer dead stage, by that course, stage,
1: yeah. uh, and that he then lived a the life uh, without knowing the ins and outs of, of his finances. Which is very hard. Very to... difficult to be. And we know, and Colum Keen has showed it in his very good book, Hockey's Millions, maybe two decades ago now. We know that Hockey had a very aggressive meeting with AIB in the 1970s where he told them he could be a very difficult uh, opponent. AIB were looking to take his checkbook off him. And unlike now, a checkbook was all how he lived. How he wrote the checks for the paintings in his house. He wrote the checks for the wine, uh, and the bank kept cashing those checks. So when the bank threatened to take his checkbook off him, you know that was like ruination. Um, they didn't. Uh, I mean he's six hundred thousand pounds in debt in nineteen seventy four to AIB. He's also in debt to uh, a bank called. The Northern Bank, I think it's called. Anyway, but he's in debt, and, and he's and trainer is moving money around certainly, and of course, money ends up in the ends bank which accounts. is terrible, you know. Uh, Ta- tax is, uh, evasion, tax, Oh, completely. Yeah. I and mean, Hottie is guilty of that, and I don't, I don't show yeah, yeah. that in the book. But he buys in his fickle on for twenty five thousand pounds. the odd famous. Well, I famous. No, it wasn't famous then. Uh, for twenty five thousand pounds. This you know island off the coast of the Blaskets, uh, off the coast of Kerry, uh, he's six hundred thousand pounds in debt when he's spending twenty five thousand pounds. I mean, and it strikes me, you know, there's a bit of a kink there somewhere, you know, that, that one, one does this because... You or know, is
0: there confidence that there'll be more of where that money came well, from? Well,
1: probably, yeah. You know, but it, it, it's a bit odd that you would be so much in debt that nevertheless you would buy. And, you know, it was it column Tobin in his review say, you know, Murphy loses the run of himself when I say Inish Vickolon is the one place how he could sort of be himself. But I but I think it was. Uh, you know, he didn't have people then looking for things off of him uh, or whatever. Um, and he was a sort of a melancholy character at times. I mean, he, he, we talked about his self-confidence. He didn't have tremendous uh, introspection in terms of his public policy decisions but he was riven by, 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 by various doubts and of course he was then carrying on also this long-standing affair with the, the socialite uh, come uh, media uh, columnist uh, uh, Terry Keane. but well, but on the money it ruins him. I mean, he lives the last few years of his life uh, almost a recluse uh, in Abbeyville. He's 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 diagnosed with uh, with cancer in 1994, and I write about his various illnesses at the end. Uh, the cancer eventually kills him in uh, in June of 2006. Uh, but it was a very difficult period of him because the tribunal started investigating and, and a lot of people wouldn't know about, obviously about the Brian Lenihan uh, fund. Hockey initiated a fund for Lenihan to his very close friend uh, ran in the 1990 presidential election and there's that famous photograph in the book uh, of Mary Robinson being uh, inaugurated and Hockey and Lennon looking grim-faced uh, yeah. to put it mildly uh, behind her and um and certainly more money was gained, more money was taken in than was spent on Lenehan. The Lenin's always said that they were happy with the treatment Brian Lenehan got. I think got,
0: they made a point at High's funeral that um, well, Brian, was Brian Jr. gave, was Brian well,
1: Junior, well, God yeah, rest he, him, yeah. gave, a, uh, uh, gave one of the readings. And Conor Lennon, in his book of 2015, Hockey, Prince of Power, uh, you know, he, he has no complaints. Uh but certainly the Moriarty Tribunal was scathing of that. And public opinion was scathing. high in the tribunal, uh, the one time he gets really upset and he, he he does it kind of a... He follows his normal, well, normal routine. He follows the routine of the arms trial. His answers are short and they're clipped, uh, you know, and he says he can't remember a lot. But the one time he gets really angry with Moriarty uh, and the tribunal lawyers is uh, on Lenehan. And he says, you know... I can't remember, but you're accusing me, you know, of you know doing wrong to my closest friend of forty years, and he gets emotional and upset. Now, people say oh, Murphy's far too, sort of soft and high, but he really was upset on, on that day.
0: Well, I suppose his way of looking at it, and. It personally, I find it warped, but understandable. Yeah. is that the money that was required to do the operation for Brian Came in, went to yeah. the operation, yeah. and he took some of what was left over. He took all
1: of it. All of year, what was yeah, left yeah, over. Exactly, and, yeah.
0: and, you know, people can take that whatever way they like. I mean, I think people would look at it in a very poor fashion, but perhaps he's looking at it as in he didn't rob his friend of anything. Oh, very much so. that's and like, pretty uh, self-serving yeah, as well. Like. Oh,
1: very much so. And, and I'm not uncritical of yeah. hockey and, and the money in that, that regard and uh, yeah but but lenin did get his operation and you know it did extend his life he died in 1995 i think yeah uh, and the Lenin's have never complained about hockey uh, subsequently and obviously sean hockey and brian lenin served and uh, connor lenin served under bertie Hearn. um but like there's no getting away from it the the, the money ruined him at the end yeah.
0: it, and one thing that would strike me about it gary and one way it ruined his legacy i would suggest mm. is He always presented himself as as a man of the people. He had the common touch. He came from a very ordinary background himself, which obviously all fit into that. Yet, if he was, as most certainly was the conclusion of Moriarty, Mm. taking very large sums of money from wealthy people...
1: Yeah, as if it was his right. As if it
0: was his right, and irrespective of anything else how could he not, subconsciously at the very least, we know that feeds into things, be beholden to that class of people, particularly in terms of how he conducted his
1: policies? Yeah, no, that's a very fair point and that's something I grappled with. Uh, And I write in the very last page of this book um, about sort of the the myths and contradictions uh, in the the Hockey legacy. uh, And I write about the sort of the humanity of him with his constituencies up against the sort of the person who took the money of the Ireland's elite as if it was his his right or, or his... Or his due. Um. What I do think, he did have this unique ability to compartmentalize parts of his of his life, and he. As he said to the Moriarty tribunal, and as his family insisted it to stay. And as someone like Charlie McCreevy told me, I interviewed McCreevy out in the Glen Royal Hotel in Minute a couple of years ago, and we got talking. And McCreevy, of course, had a complex relationship with Hockey. He was he had a heave against him yeah. in 82. Uh, but then they become relatively close friends, and they have horse racing in in, in common, for instance. Um, and McCreevy's offering him an advice in the in the late 80s about all sorts of things, including you know elections and uh, public policy. And but the money came up and I asked. Uh, I asked about corruption and t- t- depending the question you just posed to me Mick, about how he being beholden to people and he guffawed tremendously loudly so loudly that people started looking over at us and he said how he would have told uh, anyone who said here's a million uh and I wanted to do this for me. He would have told him to F off. Yeah, but that's, but not, specifically that's not specifically the point. specifically the point. Yeah, I, yeah. I I take and I take your point. It's it's an implicit thing. Um and yeah, and you know, the wealthy do on, do well under Hockey in the um, in the, the start of eighty seven, ninety two uh period. Dermot Desmond's IFSC does very well, but you know, Desmond had that idea for a long time and it was Hockey had uh, had run with it. And uh yeah, I you know, but but the evidence isn't there.
0: No, there's no specific evidence. No,
1: there's no, specific, no... But that's not to say... That's not to say it could no, I mean, and, and, and as certainly you said, uh, and it's a matter of public record, how he is not the only one in his governments to be yeah. receiving large amounts. And, of, and
0: that again goes back to... If he hadn't been at it, would the others have been at it? But then that's a separate issue. One but other thing, bit, but
1: it's a but it's a tricky business to kind is. of get. And I, I, I would, and I suppose I, I became because I lived with hockey for so long. Um, I've been working this book for like seven or eight years. I did other things, in the, obviously during the same time. And uh, but I, I, became, I kind of got to got to feel about how he thought about things. Does that yeah. make
0: sense? Oh, I'm sure, and it, that comes across in the book. Gary, I have to say, um, one thing that struck me about it, and. I, I find it somewhat tragic because he's, he was obviously quite brilliant, mm-hmm. irrespective of their aspects to his personality yeah. that uh, were distasteful perhaps and what have you, and his relations with various people, Now how he treated people. Irrespective of all that, as a public figure, somebody obsessed with politics and ultimately whatever we think of politicians... The, the, there's a core there in terms of trying to better things for a country or a people mm. and he had all that and ultimately for the other stuff to be there I, I think it's tragic but it definitely to me defined a huge part of his personality what I wonder about it though is if you go back to his early um, times mm. and quite obviously as we saw a, a brilliant individual uh, set up an accountancy firm, early qualified as a barrister, quite obviously somebody in a country that was relatively poor that had he wished could have gone into business and yeah. I think particularly of perhaps a near contemporary of his Tony O'Reilly, mm. somebody who could have gone into business, who could have become fabulously wealthy and become part of that elite and mm. um, that that was one route that he could have gone. But because he was obsessed with politics, he wanted to go into politics. But he also wanted the wealthy stuff. Oh, he did. And and to me, that idea that the big centrality of his personality was
1: being unable to choose yeah. between the two of those. Yeah, that, I, I, I would agree with that, Mick. Uh, he wanted power. He thought power was best, could best be gained through politics. Uh, he wanted to be Taoiseach. Uh, you know, he was ruthless uh, in uh, in per- certain parts of the decisions he took in, in Fianna Fall and in public uh, policy. He wanted the wealth. He loved the lifestyle. He loved sailing. He loved owning horses. He loved owning an island. Uh, he didn't have the money for any of this. The Money was given, and he to him. could
0: have had the money if he'd stayed out of politics. And he's
1: friendly with O'Reilly in the early sixties. I mean, I write about this in the book. Other people have written about it. Matt Cooper in his uh, his book on O'Reilly, the maximalist, and others. I mean, they did a holiday together um in the early sixties, and um you know there's uh, various business dealings about Heinz and whatnot. Um, and I write about that, and uh, and O'Reilly. Again, I, there's some similarities there, certainly. Uh, but how he was brilliant and he was innovative and he was radical. Um, and there is this kink there, though, as I do, use that word. Uh, uh, he wanted the trappings of extraordinary wealth when he didn't have it. But he continued to live as if he had it. And the great tragedy for him... Uh, is that all? This was exposed and and ruins him. I mean, my book. I'm not trying to rehabilitate hockey in this book, uh, but I'm trying to lay out the evidence as best it is, and I I, I treat my readers um, maturely, and they can make up their own minds. And um, but when I when I assess him, I do make the point that there are these contradictions, uh, which define him, uh, very much so. And and unfortunately for him, he dies in disgrace, and the fifteen years. 15 and a half years now, December 21, he dies in June 06, haven't been any kinder to him. No. Um, in fact, they have uh, although the book is doing relatively well, so I think there are lots of people are interested oh, in him. Absolutely. You He's know, a huge figure. Uh, there's a huge figure. He's a figure who dominates Fianna Fáil, Fall. He dominates maybe the Ireland of the from the 60s to the to the nineties. Um there are ups and there are there are downs. It's kind of Shakespearean. I, I quote Shakespeare a little bit in this and how he was fond of quoting Shakespeare. Uh, himself, and of course there was the Terry Keane thing, when that was exposed, and again Hyde never thought that would be exposed, and I write about this in the book, I, I'm more interested in the sort of the public thing rather than the, what they got up to in private, but it was very difficult for him and his family, uh, for Maureen certainly, and, and for his children, and, and it was difficult for, for her, although she was the one who revealed it on the Late Late Show in 1999, when Hyde then went out for dinner with Maureen and their friends without telling her, and that, that's a very bad black mark against him, and um, and I don't mind saying it, so it's uh you know it's it's a life of ambiguity of complexity uh of extraordinary i think achievements, but of bitter failures and you know and failings, moral failings we one might say without being too judgmental or boious because you know God knows we all have failings ourselves
0: yeah um I would suggest gary, that in terms of certainly the latter half of the century in in this country, he was two things, one the most corrupt politician we had, and secondly, the one with the greatest ability.
1: And that is maybe the the great Shakespearean tragedy in it, that a man of such gifts, I mean, uh, even intellectually, even from that young age, coming first to 500, you know, you're obviously very, very smart, getting to UCD and even getting to the King's Inns, uh, coming from Belton Park, very few from that part of the city, uh, would have and you know and they, they were they were looked down upon he was looked down upon a little bit in UCD by those who weren't on scholarships corporation scholarships uh, and again making his way in the 50s and the late I, I write about this you know Dublin was poor uh, the the business class was sort of insular and he broke into that uh, with he Boland and they do relatively well they do very well um then he he leaves the practice when he becomes a minister and he writes some very angry letters uh, to people in the 60s who accuse him of all sorts of things Saturday, so, yeah. yeah he said well you know i'm not part of this anymore and uh, how, how dare you. Um, but uh, And that whiff of sulfur was around him even before the arms trial. You know, and, and I think why the life is so extraordinary is that, you know, he was put on trial, maybe the most historic trial in the history of the state. And yeah, and his legacy is, uh, it hasn't improved. And I'm not sure this book will improve it either, but what this book sets out, I think, is, is the full life. And I
0: think I think it achieves it, Gary. I have to say, um, thanks so much. I think it's a serious, serious study, and I think there's a lot of balance. it. I know there's been some criticism that perhaps you went easy on him on the money, but then perhaps people are coming from various well, positions. I tra- well, I,
1: I, I, I tried to make the point of, of compartmentalization, you know. And uh, and when I, I I've lived with Hawkeye, I started this book in sort of January 2014. I interviewed Morning Haughey and Owen Hotties, Uh, you know. And I, I try to interview people who are. Getting on in age, they're both dead you now. As are some of my other interviewees. Uh, I interviewed a guy called Paddy Terry just at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, who was a hundred, um, and who sadly has died since. I you know, PJ Mara, um, and um, so I've lived with him a long time. Uh, I was happy to see it published um, yeah. as my publishers <laughs> are. Uh, but but the point is, you know, I uh, I can see how he compartmentalised. Mm. Um,
0: Bill Clinton was famous for fam- that. Too.
1: Famous for that, and you know, and and. I like No More Than Yourself or any of us. Uh, I was talking to Damon Dunphy about this recently, very famous biographer, of course. Uh, of um, And, uh, we, you know, my view is you put out your work into the bear pit, you take your chance. Oh, yeah. And, I, and fair- I'm not one to criticise my, my reviewers. No, Because no, I've I- written, no more, I've written, you know, uh bad reviews of other people's books so it is as it is there has been some glowing reviews
0: as well one postscript and it's not to do with high specifically but I think it's very much resonates with where we're at today which I found fascinating I have to say um, and I, t- I have to say, it's a thoroughly enjoyable read, an absorbing read as much as anything. But one tiny thing I found fascinating was when High was very prominent in Fianna Fall in the early 60s, and there was a gentleman, I think he was Desmond McCreevy's name, he may have been a party employee, he, he was asked to do a study. He was in PR. He was in PR. Yeah, yeah. He was asked to do a study of Fianna Fall to find out in terms of how the public regarded them and what exactly they stood for. And he came back with, I'd say, the the, the answer that a study today (laughs) in particular will come back with, and that is that people are not very sure what it stands for. The Revolutionary Guard were dying out and uh, what was left.
1: Yeah, that's a a fact. When I read that document, I was fascinated by it. And of course, there was great fears in Fianna Fáil that uh, went they've left that the party would sort of disintegrate no that didn't happen because Fianna Fáil had had roots in in all parts of Ireland from the the revolutionary uh, generation for hockey Fianna Fáil was and he says this in Sean O'Morda's Seven Ages although he was very upset when O'Morda's people asked him about the, the money and you can see that on the on the documentary uh, he said that for him Fianna Fáil was the vehicle which allowed people to vote for a party who would put ordinary people first and try to do things like free education which uh, how he was tangential to, too donno famously in the in the late 60s um later free travel um but it was the sort of the aspirational sort of working class and middle class would would, would enable him to 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 get on in uh, in life and and how he was on his economics, I mean, how he believed in the power of the state. He believed that the state could do things. He wasn't leaving everything to the to the market. I mean, he so you know, although his father was a Collins man, I mean, uh, you know, uh, and again, we shouldn't be painting Fianna Gael as, like, I don't think we should be a sort of crazy neoliberals. Um, but. Uh, Fianna Fáil was the party of the working man, the party, but also the party of the state um, and that the state could do things. The state could be an engineer of growth. I mean, I quote um, some documents I found in his archive, es- essays he wrote when he was a student in UCD, basically, talking of the power of the state. I mean, how he was friendly and venerated entrepreneurs. He realised that entrepreneurs were needed uh, for the state to to succeed. That explains his friendship with Desmond and others. Uh, but he thought that Fianna Fáil... Um, <laughs> Yeah, was the party of social uh, and economic uh, progress? Something his uh, his successor as leader, uh, no, Mihail Martin ha- has talked for a long time about. But the problem is, for Finna no, of course, is that uh, you know the people they don't want to look to the past; they want to look to the future. And as you wrote uh, in your uh, Examiner column this week. Uh, you know, they're not satisfied both uh, what Fianna Fáil has done in housing and uh, in health and uh, there are other people offering what seem better alternatives. But I I'd say this, I said it on TV in 2011, during the 2011 election, when people said, this is the end of Fianna Fáil. And I said, I wouldn't write them off yet when they did disastrously under, well, under, Michal Martin they just taken over in the worst of circumstances, as you know. Uh, and I wouldn't write them off uh, just yet.
0: No, but it is. It, it it's difficult, it, 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 It's difficult and what, what's interesting, what's... A lot seems to have changed in terms of the political firmament. Mm. But those questions Do that remain posed in the early 60s about the party.
1: And just to finish on this point, uh, Mick, perhaps, uh, Hockey would be outraged. He'd be appalled to see Fianna Fall, A, in government with Fianna Gale, but B, um, to see their standing in the, in the polls and at election time of, you know, anywhere between 14 and 20%, I mean, Hockey always got over 40%. Yeah, for instance
0: Gary Murphy. Hahi is the book I have to say as I said an absorbing read something I'd recommend to anybody thanks very much for talking to us today Gary thank you Mick that's it for today folks the book is simply called Hahi and it's published by Gill Books I'd like to thank Gary Murphy for today and our engineer JJ Vernon who has been ever present throughout the year thanks to everybody who listened in this year and tell your friends and family what they're missing it's been a tough year for many and let's just hope that collectively, we can get through this thing and that the new year will brighten up early enough. Go easy and we'll talk soon.